I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we discuss one of the most hotly contested Supreme Court cases of the year, King versus Burwell. The question, can five words shut down the Affordable Care Act? On Wednesday, the justices heard arguments in the King case, which asks whether or not the part of the Affordable Care Act that says that subsidies for health insurance can only be offered on a, quote, exchange established by the state means literally what it says, uh, and whether federally created exchanges should not be eligible to receive tax credits. Joining us to discuss this case are the two leading experts in the country who have discussed uh, it and, in fact, given rise to the uh, case itself. Jonathan Adler from Case Western University's School of Law is one of the co-authors of the academic paper that led to yesterday's King versus Burwell arguments in court, along with the Cato Institute's Michael Cannon. Professor Adler wrote back in 2012 that, quote, the text, structure, and history of the Affordable Care Act show the tax credits and subsidies are not available in federally run exchanges, end quote. And Professor Adler uh, discussed the case with us at the National Constitution Center last year as well. Nicholas Bagley from the University of Michigan Law School has written about the Affordable Care Act since 2011, a former law clerk for Justice John Paul Stevens. Professor Bagley rejects the primary arguments made by Professor Adler and filed an important brief in the case suggesting that federalism consideration should lead the court to uphold it. All right, gentlemen, let's get right to it. Professor Adler, Jonathan, you are indeed the, the intellectual architect uh, of, of, of this argument that got so much traction yesterday. Can you describe as clearly and concisely as possible what uh, the textualist argument uh, against granting tax credits to federally created exchanges is? Sure. Well, first, Jeff, uh, thank you uh, for, for having me, and it's always a pleasure to discuss this case uh, with Nick. Um, we've, we've done this rodeo a few times, and, and uh, it's always uh, an informative and enlightening exchange, I hope. Um, so in terms of the, the underlying argument, uh, the, ar the argument starts from a premise, which is uh, a fairly important premise in our constitutional order, which is that agencies have that authority which Congress delegates to them. Um, the IRS, or the Department of Health and Human Services, only can do the things that Congress has delegated it the power to do. And in the tax context, um, the IRS only has the power to issue tax credits, and in this case, in fact, actually write checks, draw on the federal treasury, because the tax credits are refundable, um, when Congress has given it that power. And so to know whether or not tax credits may be issued, what we have to do is we have to look at the statute that authorizes them and see what the terms of that authorization are. And in this statute, in the relevant provisions of the law that authorize the tax credits, uh, Congress repeatedly said uh, that tax credits are eligible subject to various conditions. They uh, only are available to people within a given income range. That is, you can make too much or too little to get tax credits. They also said that tax credits have to be for insurance purchased on an exchange. And they didn't say just any exchange, but an exchange that is established by the state under Section 1311 of the Act. And for good measure, the term state is expressly defined in the law to be one of the 50 states or the District of Columbia. So the plaintiff's argument in this case is that the only 
place that the IRS can authorize tax credits is where Congress said so, and Congress said that they are authorized in exchanges established by the state, not those established by the Department of Health and Human Services under Section 1321 of the law, um, that that exchange uh, is to provide many of the same functions and purposes as a, a state-established exchange, such as allowing comparison shopping and the like, uh, but is not authorized uh, to issue tax credits because an exchange established by HHS is not an exchange established by the state. Great. Thank you very much for that concise and helpful summary. Uh, Nick, just can you just respond to Jonathan on the textualist point? Even before we talk about context and Congress's intent, why do you and, and other scholars with whom you've filed amicus briefs believe that Jonathan's uh, construction of the text of the ACA is not convincing? Yeah, so one of the touchstones of textualism is that you <clears throat> should never read a given statute in isolation. You shouldn't focus intently on a snippet of text and say, aha, I know what the statute means. You've got to look to the broader statutory context and try to make sense of that snippet of text in the regulatory scheme as a whole. And so if you focus intently on the language that Jonathan mentioned, his case has a little bit of uh, force. But if you take a half step back and look at the rest of the act and try to make sense of it as a whole, his argument collapses. Um, tax credits are uh, an essential part of this comprehensive scheme that Congress designed to assure that all Americans in all states could get access to tax credits. And without tax credits, there are a lot of aspects of the law that just don't make a whole lot of sense. Um, to begin with, most importantly, Congress created these fallback exchanges that the Secretary of HHS would establish. But on Jonathan's reading of the, of the, the statute, these fallback exchanges couldn't possibly work because without tax credits, most people would be unable to afford health insurance. And if they're unable to afford health insurance, the federally established exchanges wouldn't really have that many customers. And when they wouldn't have that many customers, only the sicker customers would remain behind. And the prices for the health plans on those federally established exchanges would go through the roof. So you've got this scheme where Congress labored to create these fallback exchanges. But on Jonathan's reading, the fallback exchanges would be completely dysfunctional. So that's one clue, and there are a lot of others that you can point to in the statute and say, you know, maybe when Congress used that phrase, established by the state under 1311, what it was doing was referring to state-specific exchanges, whether they are set up by the states or whether the federal government steps in when the state declines to exercise its responsibility to establish an exchange, steps in, the federal government will come in and establish such exchange. That's what the statute says. So when the federal government comes in to establish such exchange, the natural inference is that that exchange should be treated for all statutory purposes as the statutory equivalent of a state-established exchange. Um, there are a whole lot of other statutory clues that point that direction, but I think it's really important to emphasize that the government's argument here is not, yeah, the text of the statute says that, but we can ignore the text because we know what the purpose of Congress was. That's not the government's claim. The government's claim is if you take the text of the law seriously, and not just these snippets of the tax code, but the whole law, then it becomes clear what Congress meant by the words that it chose. And did it speak somewhat infelicitously? Sure, this isn't the cleanest way to express what it meant, but we all make mistakes when we speak occasionally. And when you can take a half step back and say, look, given the sort of 
broader context of the statute, is that the cleanest way to understand what Congress meant? And the answer there is no. Congress clearly meant by the words that it chose to convey a quite different meaning than the one that Jonathan has espoused. Jonathan, you can certainly respond to Nick's uh, counter to your textualist argument, but I, I also want to ask, uh, to what degree is the court likely to find that at least the law is ambiguous? Uh, in the argument, as, as you've noted uh, yesterday, Justice Kennedy asked the Solicitor General whether this potential conflict about statutory provisions could create an ambiguity worthy of something that's called Chevron deference. Chevron is the case that says that the court should defer to agencies like the IRS in the face of ambiguous laws. Um, do you believe that, uh, at the very least, there's enough of an ambiguity that uh, Justice Kennedy or some of the other justices might be inclined to defer to the IRS? Yeah, let me say a couple things. First, Nick and I actually agree that it's important to look at the whole text. Um, the court has made that very clear that, that you, you read terms in context to understand what they mean. The word bank, whether, you, whether that's a building where you go to deposit money or have a checking account, whether it's the side of a river, obviously depends on the context in which the word bank is used. We all understand that that's not disputed. Uh, what context typically does is help us determine which of a range of possible meanings a word may encompass. So to, just to you, you give the example of a very prominent case that was decided last week involving uh, fish, uh, the question was what is the meaning of the word tangible object? Um, the court was in unanimous agreement that a tangible object did have to be an object and did have to be tangible. The question that the court divided on was whether context indicated that tangible object should only reach those things which are related to the purpose of the law, things related to financial crimes, or whether or not a tangible object uh, could involve a fish. And so the question here was whether someone who destroyed fish to evade fishing regulations could be convicted under a provision that most agree was designed to prevent the destruction of financial records in the wake of the Enron scandal. Here, the, what the government, and I, what I think Nick is trying to do with context, is not say, let's figure out how broad a word should be construed, but rather to give a word or phrase, in fact, the opposite of its actual meaning. It would be like if in the fish case, we weren't talking about whether or not tangible objects could include fish, but whether or not tangible objects could include ethereal vapors. And as the court noted at oral argument, uh, and several of the justices noted in questions, the Congress did not use established within a state. It did not say established on behalf of a state. It did not include the sort of language drawing equivalence between the federal government and the state for purposes that Congress has used in other statutes uh, and other provisions in this law in, uh, that was in dra various draft proposals, but used this precise phrase established by the state. And in fact, during the drafting of the law, Language that would have supported Nick and the government's interpretation, references to simply an exchange under Section, under section 1311, was supplemented by additional, the additional phrase established by the state. And the Supreme Court has said that that sort of draft, the drafting change is often indicative that Congress meant something different than what that phrase would mean absent the added words. Now, in terms of ambiguity, the question again with ambiguity is what is the range of possible meaning? Just because the statute is complicated doesn't mean it's ambiguous. Uh, and even if statutory terms appear to be in conflict, it's not clear that that in indicates ambiguity. The court has actually split on whether or not if you have provision A of a law pointing in one direction and provision B pointing in another, whether that conflict itself generates ambiguity. Um, uh, some of the justices have said they think it does. 
um, in a case that presented that question last term in a series of splintered opinions. The majority of the court said it doesn't, but there's really no one controlling opinion kind of explaining how to think about that question. Um, so my view is you know, there certainly are places in the law where it, the precise scope or application of terms is ambiguous. Uh, but the phrase established by the state is not, particularly when you look at how it's used throughout the statute, particularly when you look at the fact that Congress took the time to define the term state, uh, took the time to, for some purposes, say that territories could be treated as a state, but did not adopt such equivalent language for the federal government, did not include language in the statute expressly saying that exchanges, federal exchanges could offer tax credits even though such explicit language was in other draft uh, health care reform proposals. So I, I just don't think there is ambiguity. The other thing, and this just relates to oral argument yesterday, Justice Kennedy, who many think is a potential swing vote, uh, said that it would be a drastic step to uh, assume that the statute is ambiguous and therefore to defer to the IRS because a premise of deferring to an agency when a statute is ambiguous is that Congress meant to delegate the authority to resolve the question to the agency. And Justice Kennedy expressed some discomfort with that because it would mean that whether or not tax credits exist in three dozen states or potentially in the entire nation if in the wake of a decision all states decided they'd just rather go with the federal exchange, Justice Kennedy suggested that it would be really drastic to think that the IRS would get to make that call rather than requiring Congress uh, to make that sort of decision. And, and so I think the court has indicated, at least Justice Kennedy, has indicated some concern about uh, approaching the statute in that way. Uh, Nick, what do you make of Justice Kennedy's uh, statements about uh, deference? Um, is it consistent with the views about deference that the court has taken in recent cases uh, where it splintered uh, not long ago about whether or not uh, uh, agency deference is deserved. And since uh, Justice Scalia seemed to suggest, as, as Jonathan does, that it's, there's no way to view this language as ambiguous, uh, do you agree with that? And, and is that consistent with the approach that Justice Scalia and Justice Kennedy and the other justices have taken to ambiguity in other cases? Yeah. Well, look, I, I think this is one of the challengers' biggest problems in uh, winning this lawsuit is that no matter how you slice it, the Affordable Care Act um, is difficult to read in the manner that they want to read it. If you look at the broader context of the statute, it simply doesn't make sense to say that states with federally established exchanges lack tax credits. And given that, you know, there's at least a question about whether the statute is ambiguous. Um, and what's interesting is that Jonathan, although he's a very astute lawyer and although the, you know, has read this, you know, the legislative history very carefully and has gone through the statute with a fine-toothed comb, he really can't acknowledge that he has any doubt about the proper outcome here because the moment that he acknowledges that there's any sort of question about what Congress meant, he loses because of the principle of Chevron deference, the notion that the IRS, not the federal courts, should be responsible for resolving any, any latent ambiguities in the act. Um, and I have to tell you, you know, this is the part where I have a, the hardest time accepting the force of their argument. I understand the sort of uh, frankly literalist claim that they bring to bear. I understand its force. But the notion that Congress spoke unambiguously uh, in favor of withdrawing tax credits to the federally established states, I, I, I find that very difficult to accept. So I think that the statute is at a minimum ambiguous. I happen to think the government has a much stronger interpretation on the merits. But at a minimum, it's ambiguous. Um, 
And where there's ambiguity, the general rule is you defer to the agency. Now, Jonathan says, no, 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 no. You can't find ambiguity by referring to the broader context of the statute. But on this, he's just wrong. Um, the federal government mentioned, the, the Solicitor General yesterday, in response to exactly this question from Scalia, Justice Scalia, pointed out that, in fact, the court has looked to the broader context of a statute to say that a snippet of text that appears on its face to mean one thing might, in fact, upon reflection, mean something different. The Solicitor General pointed to a 2000 case where Justice Scalia joined the majority opinion, where the court construed the meaning of the word drug in the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And the FDA had said, well, we think the word drug includes nicotine, which everybody agreed is, in fact, a drug. And the FDA thus asserted the authority to regulate cigarettes. And the court said, no, 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 no. It's true that nicotine is a drug. It's obvious that it's a drug. So within the plain meaning of this snippet of text, yeah, okay, you've got the regulatory authority. But we don't think that Congress armed you with the authority to intrude into a new regulatory domain based on a statute that was enacted in 1938. So the broader context of the statute, the court said, if you believe that nicotine is a drug, the only right approach for you to take would be to ban tobacco, to ban cigarettes. And we think Congress didn't give you that authority to ban cigarettes outright. So Jonathan's mistaken that you can't look to the broader context of the statute to say, look, that snippet of text doesn't mean what on first glance it made, might appear to mean. Um, as for the question of whether this is the kind of ambiguity that the IRS should not be permitted to uh, resolve because it's just too big and important, there's a lot of case law that says you don't ask whether a question is just too big and important. You ask whether Congress has delegated to the agency the authority to resolve the question. And here, the question of where to extend tax credits was essential to the administration of this provision. This isn't the case like Brown and Williamson where the FDA tried to regulate tobacco as a drug, right, wielding old authority to intrude into new regulatory domains. This is a case where the agency had to make a choice. And however it resolved that choice, whether to extend tax credits or to withdraw them, that choice uh, would have been entitled to deference. So the notion that somehow the IRS has overstepped its authority, I, I just don't buy it. And I don't, didn't take Justice Kennedy's question to really be anything more than putting the government through its paces on this particular point. Great. Jonathan, if we could, I'd like to turn to the question of federalism and Justice Kennedy's views uh, there. Uh, you wrote after the oral argument that federalism is the federal government's best hope, and that makes the federal government uncomfortable. Uh, you noted that uh, Justice Kennedy did suggest that it could be impermissibly coercive to condition tax credits on state cooperation with federal policy, and that means that some think he could be a fifth vote to uphold the tax credit on the grounds of constitutional avoidance, but you said that that would call into question court precedents that uphold uh, disruptive regulations and would also make it easier for states like Maine uh, and Ohio to uh, sue the parts of the uh, federal government that place continued receipt of Medicaid funding on uh, uh, coercive conditions. So tell us more about Justice Kennedy's question and whether or not you think uh, that he will, in fact, uh, find the federalism objections persuasive. Sure. So Justice Kennedy raised the concern that was, has been raised in some amicus briefs, that if the statute is interpreted such that the phrase established by the state means in fact something that is established by the state, that this would create a, a, a situation that would be unduly disruptive to the federal-state balance and potentially coercive. And the idea is, is that state insurance markets 
are either way subject to a set of regulations that, among other things, increase the cost of health insurance, and that if states do not receive offsetting subsidies, uh, that then therefore that they're given an uncomfortable or uh, unwelcome choice. Uh, Justice Kennedy even said he couldn't imagine a state refusing in, under such conditions um, to accept and to create an exchange, even though um, there are several states that, um, uh, in fact, made that express choice and have asked the court um, to side with the plaintiffs, even though uh, that would mean uh, not having tax credits, and for among other reasons, because um, it would relieve uh, employers and others in those jurisdictions of various regulatory burdens. The concern that Kennedy is expressing is a concern about how far the federal government may go in trying to get states to cooperate. It's a long-standing constitutional principle that the federal government can't simply tell states to implement a federal program. The federal government's perfectly capable of implementing the program itself, but if it wants the state to participate, it has to find a way to induce the state to want to cooperate. And historically, the court has given Congress a fairly wide berth in the types of things it uses to induce cooperation. It's allowed Congress to offer states lots of money. It's allowed Congress to condition the receipt of money on, on, uh, on accepting federal requirements. It's also allowed Congress to impose conditional regulations to say to states, um, you will have one set of regulatory burdens. If you cooperate with us, you will have another more severe set of regulatory burdens if you don't. Uh, at oral argument, Justice Kennedy seemed very skeptical of the government's textual arguments, uh, along with some of the other justices. But he did think that, um, apart from those textual arguments, that if there were some residual ambiguity in the statute, that the doctrine of constitutional avoidance would counsel adopting an interpretation of the statute uh, that would um, cut against uh, the petitioners. Uh, I think that, that there is some force to that argument. I think that there are just two uh, potential problems with it. One is uh, the source of the burden on the states is actually not the lack of subsidies, it's the underlying regulations. And so it would be somewhat odd to, in this case, to say, because something might be unconstitutional, we're going to force the government to spend more money. Uh, it would seem a better thing to do would be to resolve the, the case on the statutory question and then uh, invite states that think that's coercive to actually bring a direct challenge on that basis uh, rather than um, relying upon hints of these questions in amicus briefs. Um, the other problem, though, I think, and, and it's a problem that I admittedly have very mixed feelings about, given my views of, of federal power, uh, is that the, the court has upheld uh, other federal programs that give states a similar sort of choice. So, for example, in New York versus United States, the court famously struck down some inducements as being coercive, but the court upheld a set of provisions that said to states that if they refused to cooperate in adopting regulations and programs to deal with the disposal of low-level radioactive waste, producers of such waste, which include hospitals, medical research centers, could over time be deprived of any ability to dispose of that waste anywhere. In other words, a very severe regulatory imposition on private industry within a state that refuses to cooperate. The court upheld that. Uh, the court historically has never suggested there is any problem with similar sorts of provisions under the Clean Air Act, which say to non-cooperating states that private industry in those states um, uh, that have to have a federal implementation plan, the federal fallback 
will be far more severe than the regulatory requirements in cooperating states. And the EPA currently is actually proposing a new set of regulations where EPA is very explicitly telling states that's the choice, cooperate or suffer under far more expensive and costly regulations. So to go in that direction, um, the court certainly could go in that direction, but to go in that direction, I think the court would very likely um, create a lot more room for future state challenges uh, to existing federal regulations and programs. And I think that's why the Solicitor General uh, expressed some ambivalence uh, about these arguments. And when, and when it was directly put to him whether he could defend the constitutionality of, the, of, of conditioning tax credits on state cooperation, he said that he would have no problem doing so. Nick, uh, just as Jonathan was uh, prescient in proposing these textualist arguments, so you were pre prescient in flagging the federalism objection to them in a brief with uh, other law professors, Jillian Metzger and Abby Gluck. You said that um, statute should be construed so as not to override the usual federal-state balance, absent certainty that Congress so intended, and that really presaged some of Justice Kennedy's concerns yesterday. Tell us more about how you read Justice Kennedy on the federalism concerns, and also how you respond to some commentators like Ed Whalen, who said that uh, Kennedy can only uh, invoke this avoidance, uh, this constitutional avoidance doctrine if he thinks the text is ambiguous, and if he concludes it's not, then the federalism concerns might not play out. Yeah, so a couple of points. First, when you talk about the federalism arguments that are implicated in the case, there are at least two different set of arguments that you might be drawing on. They're not mutually exclusive. The one that Justice Kennedy seemed to sort of uh, be most interested in yesterday at oral argument was constitutional avoidance along the lines that Jonathan discussed here, which is that there's something unconstitutionally coercive, or at least maybe more accurately, potentially constitutionally coercive, or at least constitutionally troubling about putting states to such a drastic choice, especially where they haven't been given terribly clear notice of that drastic choice. Um, that holding is one that sort of says, look, where we're kind of running against constitutional shoals, we should be a little bit uh, cautious, and we should construe the statute to avoid that you know, difficult, tricky, uncertain terrain. Um, I don't take the federal government to be all that ambivalent about an avoidance holding. I think an avoidance holding, they'd say, look, we can deal with that. It's not a constitutional holding in black letter law. It's just saying the court's a little bit uncomfortable construing the statute in this fashion. And in fact, the government does make in its brief a version of the avoidance uh, arguments, although it does it in fairly muted fashion. Um, the second batch of arguments that relate to federalism, I think, offer a cleaner way to resolve the case, one that doesn't make any new constitutional law, and that one that, upon reflection, I think Justice Kennedy may actually find more appealing than the relying on this kind of constitutional concerns. There's a series of doctrines that say, when you're looking at a statute, you really should select an interpretation that doesn't trench on state authority or doesn't saddle states with conditions where you're not clear about those conditions or doesn't upset the federal-state balance. Um, and so what the court could do here is say, look, we got this statute and it's amenable to the challenger's interpretation, but that interpretation raises serious federalism concerns. And so we've got these doctrines, these canons of construction that are constitutionally rooted, but that aren't about avoiding a constitutional concern. We've got these doctrines that say, hey, if you've got a choice, let's make a choice that's federalism protecting, federalism preserving, that gives states a genuine choice here, that doesn't 
pull the rug out from under them several years after they declined to establish exchanges by saying, aha, you didn't know about these consequences because we didn't write the statute to actually put you on notice of them, but now we're going to punish you and all of your citizens. Right? That's not the kind of deal that Congress typically strikes because we don't impute to Congress the desire to disrespect the states to that extent. We impute to Congress a desire to be respectful of separate sovereigns. And so I think that's the argument that, to my ears, is much more appealing and attractive. But it's an argument that was espoused by Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor yesterday, and, and Kagan in yesterday's argument. So there's at least some support on the court for sort of a, a different approach. Now, as the question that Jonathan raised, do you have to have ambiguity before these doctrines come into play? Well, kind of and kind of not, right? There's a sense in which, yeah, the statute has to be fairly amenable to the to the limiting construction that avoids these uh, federalism-related concerns. But sometimes those federalism concerns can point you to ambiguity that might not otherwise have been apparent on the face of the statute. And the way that the court put it in the decision in a case called Bond is that Congress operates against certain unexpressed assumptions about the state's role in our federal system, about the appropriate uh, scope of regulatory authority they wield, about respecting the state. And so when Congress enacts legislation, we should read its work product against the backdrop of those unexpressed assumptions. And when you do that in the context of the Affordable Care Act, it becomes quickly apparent just how untenable the plaintiff's challenge here is. The notion that Congress meant to put the states to this ferociously difficult choice, but wasn't clear about it, and in fact where no state actually understood the stakes, when it was, making their, it was making its decision about whether to establish an exchange. And where doing so would have such dramatic consequences in the individual insurance market in the states. Put all that together and you say, gosh, that's just not a construction of the statute that holds together. This is absolutely fascinating. Um, before closing arguments, I want to ask each of you one other uh, question that I'm very eager to hear your thoughts about. Can you please channel for me the thought processes of Chief Justice John Roberts? Uh, he was uh, a taciturn yesterday. He asked only two questions, uh, one involving the observation that a future IRS could change its mind about the interpretation of the statute. But as we know, in the previous health care case, he cast a historic vote to uphold the health care mandate on the grounds that the legitimacy of the court was more important than uh, strict adherence to uh, uh, judicial ideology. So um, tell us, Jonathan, what Chief Justice Roberts' previous approach to the interpretation of statutes has been. Has he been a, a textualist like Justice Scalia or more sympathetic to context? How might the legitimacy concerns play out? And it's, it's just a, a very hard question, but, but channel the chief, if you would. Sure. Yeah, we, we certainly would have all liked to have heard more questions to get an idea of what uh, he's thinking about, uh, but there was no lack of questions yesterday. The, the, the justices were quite active, which is one of the reasons the argument time was extended. In, in terms of the chief's approach, you know, the chief in constitutional cases has certainly shown a preference for looking for ways to avoid uh, making constitutional decisions, and in particular, ways to avoid declaring a statute to be unconstitutional. And I think that was uh, in, on display in uh, the NFIB decision where he upheld the mandate as a tax. Uh, but I think it's actually on display in a, in a wide range of decisions of his. Uh, but again, this tends to occur in constitutional cases. 
In statutory cases, by and large, the chief has uh, written and signed on to uh, decisions that uh, do parse the language of statutes fairly carefully and closely, um, and uh, has also uh, signed on to opinions that would constrain the scope of delegations uh, that agencies get uh, from uh, Congress. Um, so for example, a few weeks ago, he authored his decision in a case involving a whistleblower at the uh, Department of Homeland Security, where he said that um, references in a statute to law and references to law, rule, or regulation actually meant different things, uh, and that a reference simply to law as opposed to law, rule, or regulation meant that it uh, could only be referring to statutes and would not be um, uh, more inclusive. Um, but you know, he has joined opinions that adopted some more flexibility. So we don't have um, as many data points as we do with, say, Justice Scalia, and I don't think there's quite the degree uh, of, of consistency. The one thing I would point out, though, is that, is that uh, he has tended to be very comfortable with saying to Congress, um, you may have created a problem. It's your job to fix it. And in some respects, that is, is the, the thrust of plaintiff's argument, whereas the government um, in this case, and in fact explicitly in oral argument yesterday, said it would be irresponsible to leave it to Congress. The Solicitor General even suggested that leaving it to this Congress in particular would be problematic. Um, so I think uh, you know, there is reason to believe that Chief Justice Roberts should be sympathetic uh, to the petitioners, uh, but there's certainly room in his record to, to understand why he might uh, be inclined to go a different direction. Very interesting. Nick, same question to you. Please channel Chief Justice Roberts as he thinks about balancing the many complicated considerations in this case. Yeah, as is so often true, I, I agree with Jonathan on his basic assessment of the chief, that he is someone who takes statutory text very seriously, as do all the nine justices, um, but has exhibited more flexibility in the past than, say, a Justice Scalia or a Justice Thomas. Um, you know, as to what the chief, what's he going through the chief's mind, again, it's almost impossible to say, and I'd, I'd be loath to speculate. He, he was really played his cards close to the chest yesterday. And, and, and understandably so, he, he didn't need to ask questions to have the issues thoroughly ventilated because it was a very active bench. And I think the questions that he likely had were uh, vetted quite uh, thoroughly uh, by his colleagues. His single question about whether the next administration might be able to undo uh, what the IRS has done here is, you know, if you're trying to read tea leaves, maybe uh, weakly suggestive that he's inclined to rule for the government here and say, look, like, if you guys have a problem with this, you know, win a presidential election and undo it during the next presidency. But even so, I, I, I really hesitate to read a single offhand question like that, uh, re really hesitate to read much into it. Um, what I would say is that as the chief is thinking through the case and thinking through how the public will view it, I think it's really important to take a half step back from these technical questions about what the statute means, you know, the, the statutory text and how it all fits together and just say that very few people who've taken a close look at this think this is actually what Congress meant. Um, Jonathan is one of them, but very few people actually endorse the view. And if you ask the man on the street, I think they'd say, this is, a, you know, a, a fevered vision of what Congress actually intended. It certainly bears no relationship to the historical record. It's not actually what Congress meant. And I think people understand that when a court reaches out to construe a statute in a way that's completely at odds with the intent of the people who enacted that statute, 
that there are consequences of that. It makes the court look bad. It makes the court look political. Um, and I think the, the Chief Justice is sensitive to that charge. Now, whether he's sufficiently sensitive to that charge to think that he should step back from the precipice and uh, it construe the statute in line with its broader context and the, the, the overall effort of Congress to extend near universal insurance coverage, that's much harder to say. I, you know, I, I, can't, I can't hope to get inside the chief's head to that extent, but surely it must weigh on him just how artificial and made up this lawsuit looks, that it, it just doesn't bear any relationship to what Congress actually wanted to occur. So while Jonathan is right that at times he said, Congress, you may have made a mistake and it's up to you to fix it, not me, I think saying that in this context with this Congress, which isn't exactly apt to respond in any kind of sensible, thoughtful fashion, I think saying so will ring hollow. And I think he'll recognize that that statement would ring hollow. And that's, that's got away on him a little bit. Absolutely fascinating. Gentlemen, it is time for closing arguments in this most interesting of all cases. Uh, Jonathan Adler, I'm going to ask you, first of all, how you feel as the intellectual architect of the arguments that led to the King decision uh, about the prospects uh, for their success and how you think the court will, in fact, rule. Well, um, uh, in terms of how I feel, you know, it, it's certainly uh, uh, somewhat surreal to see uh, what began as an op-ed in a newspaper and then a longer article actually become a, a case that goes to the Supreme Court. That's certainly not what I expected uh, when I did the initial uh, work on this or the initial research, uh, which itself was in, in some respects the result of, a, of, an, of, of an accident in the sense that I was originally asked to look at some of these questions uh, for an academic conference and you know, did not realize what, what uh, my research would point to. Um, you know, in terms of um, you know, what I think the court will do, uh, you know, who knows? Um, you know, I think uh, uh, what I got from the oral argument yesterday was that it will be very hard for the federal government to get five votes for its reading of the text. Um, I think quite a few of the questions pointed out that um, the federal government really can't explain why the phrase established by the state is in the statute, is in the relevant provisions in multiple places, and was added during the drafting in multiple times, at multiple times, uh, and that however much we may want to uh, read terms broadly or narrowly based on context, established by the state has to mean established by the state. It can't mean established by Amazon or established by the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, I do think, though, there is a real possibility that other non-textual factors, like the federalism concerns you discussed, could result in the government winning. And if that were to happen, you know, I'm, I'm in some respects okay with that. I think, I think that, that the read of the statute that I put forward and, and explained and, uh, in fact, works, makes the best sense of the entire statute, uh, ensures that every provision in the statute has meaning. Um, and it's consistent with everything we know about how Congress has approached health care reform in this, case, in this instance, as well as historically, given that Congress has regularly and repeatedly considered conditioning benefits uh, to needy populations and to states on state cooperation, whether we're talking about Medicaid, whether we're talking about the conditional provisions that were in the Clinton health care reform proposal to help bill and so on. Um, so if the court were to say, hey, the text is as the plaintiffs say, but there are reasons why we won't decide that way, I'm okay with that, um, and and particularly if it meant that the court takes federalism principles uh, perhaps more seriously than it has historically, uh, I, I I would would feel comfortable with that. And 
we would certainly have then have a lot more cases to talk about because there's a lot of litigation that would follow both under this statute and other federal statutes. Thank you, Jonathan Adler, for that uh, extraordinarily thoughtful closing argument, which really embodies uh, an admirable spirit of judicial humility and open-mindedness. Um, Nicholas Bagley, your closing thoughts, how will the court rule? Uh, and if the court accepts Jonathan's argument, uh, what are the stakes and what would the consequences be? Yeah, I'm, I'm with Jonathan in, in not knowing what the court is going to do. We had two justices who walked into the courtroom yesterday with big question marks over their heads. That was Chief Justice and Justice Kennedy. And I think we walked out with big question marks over their heads. We learned a little bit about how, justice, how seriously Justice Kennedy takes these federalism arguments. But we also heard him suggest that maybe the statute was unambiguous and there was nothing he could do about that. So we, we kind of heard, you know, there, there was a little something for everyone in what Justice Kennedy offered. Um, I suppose in, in closing, you know, what, what I'd like to sort of emphasize is, is the consequences of a court's decision here, not because I think, well, because I think that they are legally relevant in the following sense. The court ruled against the government here. About 9.6 million people are going to lose out on their health insurance. About 70% of the people who are enrolled in health care plans on federally established exchanges will lose them. Their rate, the rates for everyone who remains will go up by almost 50%. So we're talking about a very serious set of consequences, and the only way you can justify those is by saying this is what Congress meant. But if that's what Congress meant, then it would have sent that message to the states much more clearly. It would have said so with real rigor. It would have said, states, let me tell you what the stakes of this choice are. It wouldn't have hidden the stakes of that choice in a remote technical provision of the tax code. It would have put it in the provisions of the statute that actually spoke to the consequences of declining to establish an exchange. And there are such provisions, and they say not one word about tax credits. What's more, again, I just don't understand how you can read the statute to create fallback exchanges, federally established fallback exchanges, that would be completely dysfunctional. Why would Congress labor so hard to create these fallback exchanges if they simply wouldn't work? So I think those considerations really tell you something. Right? The, the, the fallout here actually tells you something important about the meaning of the statute here. And the meaning of that statute is just not amenable, I think, to the construction that, that Jonathan has authored and it, uh, offered. And at a minimum, the statute here is ambiguous. And where there's ambiguity, the tie goes to the administration. The tie doesn't go to the courts. So here's hoping that the court upholds this IRS rule uh, and uh, does so on a sensible ground come the end of June. Thank you. Jonathan Adler and Nicholas Bagley for an unusually thoughtful and illuminating discussion of the most hotly contested Supreme Court case of the year. I sense greatness in this discussion. Both of you have helped us understand the legal arguments and the stakes in the case with unusual clarity. Congratulations to you, Professor Adler, for having set this case in motion, and to you, Professor Bagley, for having uh, so ably debated the issues with Jonathan. Please join us for the next of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. And I don't